The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Inside of us to change us on the inside. And praise God, He has done that. He has already renewed us inside and He is continually renewing us day by day on the inside. Now we come to this morning's section, 25 and following, and we see that basically this section is taking 22, 23, and 24, the theory there about putting off and putting on and being made new, you recall that from last week, taking that theory and telling us to get to work with it. These eight verses contain 11 explicit commands. Last week we talked about implied commands. A statement that implies how you're supposed to act. For instance, if you put this off, well, the implication is that you should keep putting that off if you ever run into it again. That's an implied command. Not so this morning. These are explicit commands. Paul's going to get into our business a little bit here. Direct commands to do something. The common pattern is going to run something like this. Put this off, command. Put this on, because. Put this off, put this on, because. Now those words are not going to actually appear in the text. But that's the general structure. If you've already put off that old man, well, it's going to say Paul, here's something that belongs to that old man. Get rid of it today. And since you've put on the new man, here's something that belongs to the new man, put that on today and here's why I'm gonna tell you why so as to renew your mind just a little bit more today I'm not just gonna tell you what to do I'm gonna tell you why that's the continual renewing right there that's the general structure repeatedly we'll see that pattern today and it's that pattern itself that kinda of holds these verses together because the subjects they address are a little bit different it's the overarching pattern, put off, put on, because, that brings some unity to this. That being said, I think we can make one statement that's going to kind of sit over all of them. Relates to last week. Relates to a lot of what we've been talking about already. Here it is. I'm going to put it in a command because that's the, that's the feel of these verses. A command to you. Main point. Change. And continually change for the sake of the body. You change and continually change for the sake of the body. You've got family obligations. Carry them out. When you came to Christ, you were renewed, you were changed, and then from then on you are being continually changed. It's an ongoing, lifelong process towards the goal of being a great and full blessing to the family that this body would work together and work well towards the ultimate final goal that the God who made the body would be glorified. You are to change and continually change. Ultimately for Him, but on a, a level before that, for the sake of the body. It's the main point. Paul's going to unpack this in, in four different specific categories. Before specific things he addresses. And then there's going to be a fifth category, which is more general and kind of overarching. A summary, if you will. So really, in, in the end, there are five categories that we're going to look at. And because there are five, we're not going to spend a half hour on each one of them. It's going to be a little quicker. We're going to look at those five categories in a moment, but first let me read the text. 
going to read from the English Standard Version. Last part of chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. first of the five categories is found in verse 25. Speak the truth because we are a body. Speak the truth because we are a body. The verse begins, therefore having put away falsehood, he's connecting us back to last week right there, he's beginning to lay out an argument, therefore since that's happened, since you've put that away, now here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor or more bluntly to communicate the force of the command simply speak the truth speak what is accurate speak that which conforms to reality that which conforms to the scriptures that which is Christ Christ is truth that which when spoken in love builds the body up that truth speak it speak it always and continually put off all falsehood Consider that falsehood for a second. Satan is the father of lies. He's been a liar from the very beginning. From the first record that we have of him in the scripture, right there on page two. You will not die, Satan lied. And shortly thereafter, we all died. He killed, and he continues to kill, figuratively speaking, with deception. That's what he uses. All sin contains a lie. A lie that it will profit you. A lie that God is not being good to you when he holds this away. A lie that what is actually a curse is in fact a blessing to you. All of it is a lie. And when we lie, when we somehow cling to falsehood and hold on to the remnants of that which we have put off, when we do that, we spread this falsehood in the body. We sow this deadly disease in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. Do not do that. Don't cling to falsehood in any way. Not at all anymore. Now at this point, it might be helpful to ask. Ask yourself this question about your lying. Whoa, you might say, my lying? Are you calling me a liar? That's kind of blunt. You do lie, you know. 
I do too. Maybe if we put it under some different words, it would be a little more palatable. Sometimes you don't stand up for the truth. Sometimes you kind of let a falsehood slide by when you're in conversation with somebody. Sometimes you kind of slant a statement or a conversation so as to shade the truth, to present you and yours in a little more positive light and them and theirs in a little more negative light. Sometimes you deliberately leave some answers unconsidered because you have this kind of feeling they're not going to take you where you want to go. Other times, in a, you look at things and you, you approach an issue with your mind already made up, more interested in the solution than the truth. A hundred ways, in a myriad of ways, you and I both lie, or at least in some way cling to the falsehood a little bit, cling to that remnant of that old self that we've put off. We've already been renewed, but we're not yet fully renewed. That's why this verse is in the Bible. It's a command written to Christians to put off falsehood continually and to speak the truth. And the fact that it's here, it implies, does it not? that Christians have a problem at least a little bit with speaking the truth at all times, always? It's in the Bible to us. It applies we need to hear it. So, regarding your lying, it's part of your old self and you know it's poisonous, but why do you lie? Why do you do that? Let me encourage you, the answer is not in your circumstances and it's not in your history, it's in your heart. There are a lot of things that could be talked about here, but fundamentally you are still too much like verse 18. You recall that from last week, what the fallen heart, the fallen mind is like. Certainly there are a collection of factors, but the root of all this, if I cut right to the chase, is distrust. It's distrust in God. You do not yet fully believe that the God of all truth is actually trustworthy. You do not yet fully believe Him, that He is more than enough for you. So what you end up doing is you end up acting and seeking out ways to provide for yourself and to protect, protect yourself, lying if need be, massaging the truth so as to protect your own reputation or to land that deal at work. Not believing, fundamentally not believing Psalm 84 and a ton of other verses. Psalm 84 says, The Lord bestows honor and favor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord takes care of your reputation. The Lord meets your needs. But fundamentally, something inside of you still doesn't really believe that. I know it's true of you because it's true of me. Now, consciously, we, we know better than that. But it's still there. Distrust in your heart is at the bottom of you clinging to remnants of falsehood. But this need not be. The Lord can be trusted. Fix your mind on the truths that prove He can be trusted. He has given you His Son, argues Romans 8. Will He not also, along with the Son, give you all other things you need? Yes, He will. May He continue convince you of this in your heart and in your mind to convince you that he is trustworthy and that you need not take things into your own hands speak the truth the body needs truth to grow 
The truth you are to speak is far-reaching truth. Truth about everything. Certainly it includes the gospel, but it's truth in all realms. Speak the truth about the weather. Speak the truth when you're commenting on someone's character. Speak the truth when you're telling someone how to go to heaven. Speak the truth everywhere, in everything. Now yes, you need to speak the truth in love. We've seen that previously already. We need to speak the truth carefully, speak it in love so as not to just indiscriminately blast people in a careless way. But you need to speak the truth. And if as you evaluate the situation, you kind of think the truth might actually hurt this person, that's not an argument to not speak the truth. It's an argument to think carefully so as to speak it in a less hurtful way and so as to commit to be faithful to bind up the wounds that are created by the truth. You must speak the truth. Your neighbor, the body, needs it to grow. Who's your neighbor? Well, in one sense, everybody's your neighbor. But here in this passage, the focus is on the body. The very next phrase makes that clear. We are members one of another. Members, as in pieces of an organism. Like members of a, of a physical body or limbs on a body, limbs on a tree. It's talking about the body here. We are to speak the truth to the body because we are a body that needs truth to grow. You see the reasoning here. He says, you put off falsehood, so get rid of it entirely and speak the truth because we are a body. And the body needs truth to grow. Remember that from previously up there? Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and, and, and gathered together, every part doing its own work builds itself up. What it uses are the gifts and primarily truth within the gifts. So what you see here is that neutrality is not an option. It's not just get rid of falsehood. It's not just if I happen to speak, be sure I don't lie. It's not a neutral position. It's a positive position. Get rid of this and do this. Speak and speak the truth because the body needs truth. Speak the truth because we are a body. It's the first category. The second category is found in verses 26 and 27. Spend a little more time here comparatively. Control your anger because the body has an adversary. Control your anger because the body has an adversary who is waiting to exploit your anger to all of our destruction. Take care to control your anger. Verse 26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Take care that what, not, that what so often occurs actually not occur in your life. Very frequently things happen in life. We see them. We respond to them. We get angry and sinful thoughts and attitudes and actions follow. Take care that that not happen. Now it's interesting to note that anger itself, in itself, is not always sin. God is angry at times. Jesus, when he walked the earth, was angry, yet was without sin. So clearly, there is some anger that is not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. This verse seems to allow for that. But we need to take care, because the emphasis in the verse is not encouraging us to be righteously angry. The emphasis is to be sure it doesn't turn into sin. We need to balance the concept of righteous anger 
with passages from like James 1.20 that says the anger of man always fails to attain the righteousness of God. And we need to balance it against what we'll see in the fifth category, the fifth overarching category down in verse 31. It's actually going to tell us to get rid of all anger and all wrath. There's a tension here. There is such a thing as righteous anger, but the vast majority of the time, our anger is not actually righteous. Very easy to trick yourself into thinking that it is. Take care to control your anger that it not become sin. Where does this unrighteous anger come from then? I'm assuming right here that most of our anger is in fact unrighteous anger. It would be nice to think otherwise, but I don't think it's the case for me at least. Where does it come from? Here's where it comes from. You get angry when you look at circumstances in your life that do not match what you want or expect. But it's not just that, because that happens all the time. You get angry when circumstances in life do not match what you really, really wanted or expected. The higher the expectation and demand there, the more agitated you get inside. The human heart is, is complex, and sometimes this situation of expectation not met, sometimes it leads to, to emotions more akin to sorrow. Sometimes it does that. But sometimes, often, it does this. It moves towards sin. And in those situations, towards sin of anger, when those, in those situations, when anger arises, here's what your heart is saying. If your heart that is angry had a voice, here's what it would say. It would say, this is what is, but this is what is supposed to be. What I'd hoped for and planned for, what should be. And someone or something has acted to thwart my will. It's ruined my agenda and my plan. It's done contrary to what I determined the course of, <clears throat> of life is supposed to be. I'm not sorrowful right now. I'm angry about that. That's what your heart is saying. How dare he or she violate my will? Doesn't she know that my will is supposed to be what happens? Doesn't he know that what I want is supposed to occur? That's not right. That has to be stopped. Doesn't he or she realize that I actually am in charge? That I'm God? God with a lowercase g. This has to be changed. Now, of course, consciously, none of us are claiming to be God. None of us are asserting that. We don't actually think that on the conscious level, but, but you do need to stop and consider this. The root of anger, the root of anger is frustration that your will has been thwarted. We don't ever get angry without it being the case that our will was crossed. And when that happens, you get angry because you think that your will is not supposed to be crossed. It's not supposed to be stopped, it's supposed to be followed. It's supposed to be heeded, not violated. Something inside of you is convinced that my will should be done on earth and even if possible in heaven. That's how the thinking is going inside of us. This can be hard to swallow a little bit. This is kind of a big pill, I think. Hard to take this. 
but it needs to be considered. The root of anger is actually idolatry. What's happening when we get angry and we get furious, I'm talking about sinful anger here, is that inside of you something, fallen self in you, has replaced the God of the universe with another little God, yourself. Put you on the throne and it said, what I want is supposed to be what happens. The world is supposed to revolve around my will. When you and I get angry, we get angry at stoplights that won't cooperate, or a child who won't cooperate, or another church member who says or does something that's hurtful or not respectful, or a spouse who disobeys God and doesn't love me or respect me as I'm supposed to be loved and respected. What's going on inside is that part of the fallen you in you still thinks you should be in charge. And it's rising up there. And it's being stopped. And it doesn't like that. Not totally. Not, not all the time. None of us are like that always. I'm trying to qualify that appropriately. We don't always think like that. But sometimes we do. It's the root of anger in us. Now, more could be said about that. We could talk for a long time about that. And if I haven't persuaded you yet of that, please talk to me afterwards. But for right now, I've got to move on. And please note this, that what anger does is anger provides an opportunity for Satan among us. Here's what happens. When you and I are, are walking down this path of sinful anger, convinced that we should be in charge and that what we want should happen, here's what Satan does. He slides up right next to us and whispers in our ear, Yes, you're right. You are God. You are supposed to be in charge. What you want should happen. That has to be stopped. Those people aren't acknowledging you for who you are. That's got to be dealt with right now. And if you don't deal with it today, it's going to be all the harder to deal with tomorrow when again everybody forgets that you're in charge. That's what he whispers in your ear. And then you know what he does with your opponent? He slides up beside her and whispers the very same thing in her ear. You are in charge. You are God. He calls both of us then to battle against each other so that we won't link arms and battle against him and so that he can tear apart the body and disparage the Lord who has brought great unity to the body see his plan he's just looking for chink in the armor to work his way in there anger provides great opportunity for him we must take care to control our anger you start by figuring out the root of it and then you move quickly to deal with it quickly before the sun goes down it's a proverbial way of saying do it promptly analyze yourself promptly look at your own life and figure out what are my buttons what do I get pushed in where do I notice that I habitually get angry I would encourage you to take that sheet that I handed out when we were talking about the first six verses about the the humble person and the proud person Take that sheet and work through that sheet again and analyze it. There are a lot of things in there that touch on anger. Figure out who you are and how you get angry. Deal with that. 
Repent of it. Run back to verse 2 and say, Lord, make me humble and gentle in spirit. Move me over to the right side of that column. Do that quickly. And then if need be, quickly go to the person with whom you've been in an argument, with whom you've been angry and seek forgiveness. Deal with these things quickly. Repent. Control your anger. Because the body has an adversary who wants to use your anger against all of us. He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do not volunteer. Don't volunteer yourself and don't volunteer all the rest of us either. That's the second category. Control your anger. Thirdly, verse 28. Be productive because the body has external needs. Be productive because the body has external, physical needs. Shortly he's going to talk about other types of needs, internal, spiritual, emotional needs, but here he's focusing on the physical. Let the thief no longer steal. Theft is forbidden in the law and should have no part in the Christian's life. No theft of any sort, not cheating on your taxes, which is theft from the government, not stealing cable television, not stealing copyrighted music, not stealing ideas in plagiarism. All of that is theft. All of it is sin. None of that should be attached to us in any way. We put that off. Keep putting that off. We're not going to talk about those things. We're going to follow Paul here. Paul actually takes a little different tact. His main focus is not exactly an attack on theft in general. His main focus is concern for the needs of the body, the family. The thief is no longer to steal, okay, but what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to work hard, to labor. The word there is emphasizing hard work. It doesn't mean just manual labor, though it says work with your hands. What it means is do something, be productive, work hard at it, make an earnest effort to earn your own keep. Put off theft, put on hard work, but even that's not really the main goal. The end goal, and here's where he gives some of the reasoning, some of the because. The main goal is that we care to the physical needs of the body. Follow him there. Do honest work with your hands so that you will have something to share with anyone in need. Put off stealing, put on hard work so that you can share. There are people in our body or people who are connected to our body, who from time to time, maybe even right now, have had a hard time finding work, or sufficient work, or are physically unable to work in some different ways. If that's you right now, the expectation of this verse for you is that you give honest, hard effort to find work. And if you are, then there is no reason whatsoever to feel guilty or embarrassed or ashamed or anything like that. You should make your needs known to us while expending earnest effort to find work. And if you can't find work with your honest effort, then the obligation in this verse to all the rest of us who have been fortunate enough to find work is to share. That's what we're supposed to do. 
The early church in Acts 2 sold their belongings, their property, and even their homes so that people in the body would not go in need. That's supposed to be our attitude. I want to commend you, church, on this point. I've been encouraged by a number of different things in past months related particularly to our benevolence offering. It changes month to month, but I have been very encouraged to notice that from times in the past to sometimes recently, there have been as many as quadruple the number of people giving to the benevolence offering. Varies month to month, of course, but that itself is highly encouraging to me. And the actual dollar amounts given have also been increasing. Thank you for that. That is encouraging to me. It tells me that something in this verse is grabbing you. You're seeing this. That is a good thing that honors the Lord, that brings Him glory here in this body. It's a good thing. Excel still more, I say to you in this. The third category is that we are to be productive so as to meet the external needs of the body. And the fourth category then moves to the internal needs. The fourth category. What are we to put off in this verse here in verse 29? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Put off destructive speaking and put on edifying speech that is good for building up those who hear. In a sentence, here's this fourth category. Speak wisely because the body has internal needs. It has spiritual and emotional needs. All of us do. So we all are to speak wisely so as to help meet those needs. The tongue is a powerful tool. A powerful tool. There are two ways you can use it. Which one of these are you more commonly? You're, you're neither one of these entirely. I'm neither one of these entirely. But the question to you is, which are you more commonly? As you listen to these two, two different ways, evaluate yourself. I've prayed for you that you would have grace to see yourself honestly. That you would have friends around you who would speak to you honestly and tell you which one of these more fits you. Is it more common for you, not totally, not all the time, but more common for you to speak in ways that are critical, that are destructive, that are unwholesome or corrupting, the word is rotting, that tear down, that undermine, that backstab? Is that more like your speech? Is that more commonly how you talk? Not all the time. Not even all the time in every situation. But in some situations, is that more commonly you? Evaluate yourself honestly. Notice the opposite of it, the second way. The opposite of this destructive speech is not simply non-destructive. Again, it's not the neutral position. Well, okay, I'm not going to tear people down. I'm not going to be critical, so I'm just not going to say anything. It's the opposite of this is not neutrality. It's positive speaking. Is this more like you? Do, do you see yourself more as speaking edifying words that are good for building up, 
the type of speech that sees the situation, that knows the person who is in it, knows what needs to be said and then speaks it so as to build this person up and to encourage this person or perhaps this group of people. Edifying, constructive, encouraging words, life-giving words. Is that more commonly you? Which is it? Note that on the surface, these kind of building up and encouraging words might not always be nice words. Sometimes when you know a person and you know the situation they're in, what is required is a rebuke. That's what they actually need to be built up. So it's not always nice or seemingly kind things, not always sweet, but they will ultimately, those words of yours will ultimately serve to build up and not tear down, not destroy. It will be truth spoken in love. The text says actually it will be grace. Grace to other people. Grace from God through your lips to other people. Think about that privilege. That is an amazing opportunity. You have the chance to speak Christ and His grace into people's lives to build them up. God is actually going to let you at His people. He's going to let you participate in the construction project. For those of you who have kids, you know how this works. You ever been building something and your young child stands around and looks? And then you say, hey, will you hold this? And they love it. Hey, will you go get me the Phillips screwdriver? That's the one with the little cross on the end. And they're, they're participating. And then when they get a little older, they can actually screw in one of the screws or maybe whack at some of the nails a little bit. They love it. They get to be a part of that. They're, they feel special. God is letting you be involved in the construction project of this body. It is a marvelous opportunity to you. He's tasking you with building this body up with words of grace. Not just don't tear it down, build it. That's what he's saying to you. Take him up on this great opportunity. To not take him up on this would be grievous. It would grieve the Holy Spirit. Brings us to verse 30, and the transition into the fifth category. The fifth category is an overarching general one. It's kind of a summary. I'm not going to treat each of the elements in it individually. The fifth category says, walk in tender-hearted forgiveness because of the gospel. Walk in tender-hearted forgiveness because of the gospel. I want to focus on the last part. Because of the gospel. These verses are a summary, 31, 32, are a summary of the type of life we are supposed to walk now that we've been saved. They're a summary of the things that are to be put off continually and to be put on continually and the type of attitude that we're supposed to have in the midst of it. And notice these verses are framed by the Trinity. The Spirit in verse 30, the Father and the Son in verse 32. And this summary section 31 and 32 rests on the great work of the Trinity on our behalf. It rests on the Gospel stated succinctly there, as He forgave you. It throws us back to the first couple of chapters again. 
That last phrase, God in Christ forgave you. You once, you once were dead in your trespasses and sin. An enemy of God by nature. Hopelessly lost, personally resistant to Him in His glory. In a hundred different ways, holding Him off. Though He had made you from nothing. Though He held His life in your hands. And though you would stand before Him in judgment one day. And what of His Christ, Jesus, God, come in flesh? What about Him? You did not trust Him. You did not love Him above all things. His commandments were not your guide and His pleasure was not your goal. You were both unwilling and unable to embrace Him. You did not look at Him in obedience as a king. You didn't love Him as a spouse. You didn't fellowship with Him like a friend. You had gone your own way away from Him and were continually walking away from Him headed towards an eternity away from Him, following after the ways of the world, the passions of your own desire, following even after Satan. You were by nature an object of wrath. That's who you were, but God. But God changed all of that. And He made you alive. He brought you back from death to life. By grace, you have been saved should move your heart, should move you to cry out, glory, I've been forgiven. That which you did not deserve, that which you had not properly sought, but that which you desperately need, that is what He gave to you. By grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, changed your life, changed your world, changed your eternity should cause us to praise Him. It's like a man who owed a vast debt to a great king. More than he could ever repay in many lifetimes. He was brought before that king. And to his wonder, his debt was forgiven, canceled, paid in some other way, borne fully by the king himself. Wonder of wonders. And then this newly forgiven man, who should still have been reeling from what had been done for him, walked out of the palace, out onto the street, and he saw another man who owed him five dollars. And he demanded that money from the man. And when he couldn't be paid, he threw him in prison and threw him into his destruction. So we go forth. So we go forth. We read chapters 1 to 3, and we get up and we go forth, we walk out of the palace, we walk out onto the street, and we see somebody else who's committed some small offense against us. And what do we do? while we should be still reeling from the impact of those chapters, from the impact of these few words, God in Christ forgave you, while we should be reeling from those words and what they mean for us, instead we look at the other person and we walk arguing against them, in anger against them, slandering those who oppose us. Rather than building them up, we tear them down. We say, be blessed and be filled with them, and then we deny them any tangible help. We turn away from them. We give Satan a toehold. No more than that, we give Satan a whole wing of the house. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. The forgiven man in the parable had no concept of his being. No concept of what had happened to him. And his walking proved it. What about you? Do those words there, God in Christ forgave you, do they grip you? 
This might sound like a lot of other things I've said, and it should. The Bible really doesn't have a lot of complicated messages. Keep saying the same things over and over again. And it keeps saying this, God in Christ forgave you. Be gripped by that. That's why you should forgive others. Have a mind and a heart that is changed by that. If you don't, it just grieves the Holy Spirit. He's grieved when we don't think like that and we don't act like that. But we instead walk in anger and in selfishness. We walk speaking critically and tearing people down, denying them help. He's grieved by that. The Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of us. This is actually a quotation. There are several quotations in the Old Testament in this passage. This is referring back to Isaiah. The people of God grieved the Holy Spirit there and he withdrew from them. Don't risk chasing away his blessing out of our midst. Don't invite him to write Ichabod across our church, the glory of the Lord has departed. Don't walk like that. Don't grieve the Spirit. Instead, walk after him. Cry out to him, Spirit, have your way in my heart. Continue to renew me more. Put yourself where renewal happens, around the scriptures, in prayer, in fellowship with other believers. Beg him, beseech him, change me, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see this and by contrast look at everything that everybody else does against me and think that's nothing because it isn't anything. It's possible to live like this. You are called to live like this. Eleven times here commanded to live like this. But the scripture does not give us stuff in a sense of like, uh, you know, buck up and do it. It gives us commands, put off and put on, and it gives us heart-changing truth. It lays the foundation for the commands. And here it is, God in Christ forgave you. Pray that you would walk gripped by that, and that you would walk committed to be more gripped by that all the time. Don't just try to obey the commands. First, Focus on the internal heart change that will enable you to obey the commands as God graciously renews you. That's His call and His challenge to you. Change and be changed for the sake of the body. You have family obligations. It's not just about you. It's about all of us. How you live and how you walk matters to all of us. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.